The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Let's get into the message this morning, and we're going to continue with this resurrection story of Jesus. As I said, uh, we started this, uh, I should say, I have to own up to it. I started this Luke series uh, five years ago, okay? Shows you how slowly we go through books here. Um, But we're coming to the end. This is the second to last message in the book of Luke, okay? Um, And so we're getting there. Um, Last week, in our Easter service, we looked at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and you may have noticed that I spent a good amount of time in last week's message laying out the historical evidence for the resurrection. And the reason that I did that is because the Gospels themselves make much of that, of the evidence for the resurrection. The, the Jewish leaders, as I said last week, were familiar with that claim that Jesus made while he was still alive. That when I'm put to death, three days later, I'm going to come back. I will rise again. And so they did everything that they could with the help of the Romans to make sure that would not happen. And they guarded the tomb with a a Roman battalion. And despite their best efforts, Easter morning arrives and the tomb is empty and the body of Jesus is missing. And both the Romans as well as the Jewish leaders, had an incredibly strong motivation to discredit any claims for a resurrection. Because they knew that that was only going to fuel the fire of this revolution that Jesus was starting. But despite their motivation to discredit it, they could offer no plausible explanation for the empty tomb. The best that they could do is bribe the Roman soldiers and have them make a lie that some of this ragtag group of followers of Jesus had actually overcome the Romans and stolen the body. Um, I think there is this danger of thinking that all religious claims are about equal, whether it's in Christianity or Buddhism or, or Hinduism or even Mormonism or Christian science, or you name it, and say, you know, when it comes to religious claims, they're all in the same category. You know, they, they sort of transcend uh, verifying, you know. So you could say that, you know, one religion says there are purple dinosaurs roaming around and gobbling everyone up, or you, you just make up whatever you want, and basically they lie beyond verification. They're religious claims, but that's not true. Not all religious claims are the same. The evidence that surrounds Jesus' death and resurrection were recorded with a level of detail and historical authenticity that just simply isn't found in other religious writings. Luke's introduction of his own gospel, we looked at it at the start of this series, talks about how he himself says, I researched all of this carefully. You know, we, we heard these eyewitness testimonies from the people that were there at the time, decades earlier, before I wrote my book. 
But in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke says, I turned every stone and I interviewed every person I could find and I looked at the historical data and out of that careful research and investigation, I wrote this gospel. Last week we saw how none of the disciples of Jesus were even expecting a resurrection. In fact, a group of women who were his disciples as well went to the tomb early Sunday morning to complete the burial process. They were going in anticipation of finding a corpse so that they could pack that corpse with spices, according to the Jewish tradition. But to their surprise, they found the tomb empty and were met by a couple of angels who rebuked them and said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He isn't here, he is risen. And in amazement, the women run back to the 11 disciples and report, report everything that happens, and they refuse to believe. They say these are wives' tales. These women are hysterical. They don't know what they're talking about. In fact, so low was their faith, they couldn't even be inconvenienced enough to go to the grave themselves and check things out. Only Peter went back and found the empty tomb, just like the women had claimed. And up to this point in Luke's account, there is no actual sighting of Jesus after the resurrection. All we have is an empty tomb. It isn't until the story that we're exploring this morning that Jesus first shows up in Luke's gospel after his death. And so we want to look at this passage in Luke chapter 24, verse 13 to 35. And it says this, The very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They went to, at, at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should, shuff, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. 
But they argued and strongly saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he would talk to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you that the story recorded 2,000 years ago of Christ appearing to two of his disciples would open our eyes to see the reality of Christ who is present here with us even this day. And so grant to us eyes to see the living Lord who lives among us and is present with us to strengthen us in our times of need. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we've just read, the account, it is still Easter Sunday when these events happen. A pair of Jesus' disciples who are not part of the 12 apostles are heading from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus, which is, we're told, seven miles away. That, to give you some perspective on how long that journey would have been, would have been like walking from here to Woodfield Mall, if you're walking in a straight line. Okay, that's about seven miles. Okay. And one of them is named Cleopas. We don't know what the other one's name is. He remains anonymous, or maybe it was a she. We don't know. And Jesus shows up and joins them on their walk. And even if they knew Jesus when he was alive, we're told that they were kept from recognizing him. And they looked depressed. And so Jesus asked them, what are you guys talking about? And in what has to be one of the most ironic statements in the Bible, they turn to Jesus and say, are you clueless, man? Like, are you the only guy who doesn't know what's been going on here? It's so ironic because Jesus is the only one who knows what's going on here, and yet they accuse him of being clueless. But Jesus plays along, and he says, I don't know, tell me what things, what's been going on here in Jerusalem? And then we basically get what could be called the gospel according to Cleopas, okay? And Cleopas basically says to Jesus, this guy Jesus, he was a great prophet. He, he was an amazing man. He did miracles and taught amazing things we have never heard before. But the Romans crucified him. They killed him. And now he's dead and gone. And just this morning, we heard this crazy news from these women who said that the tomb was empty, but we have no idea what that's all about. And so we're sad because we lost our leader. I want to ask you, have you ever felt the devastation of putting your hope in something only to be let down? You know, <clears throat> my mother's, ever since we were young, is this health food nut, okay? I grew up in this household where my brother and I had to eat all kinds of crazy stuff. 
uh, by mandate from our mother. Um, I don't even want to go through the list of the stuff I had to eat growing up, you know? Uh, I think that's why I love junk food so much. It, just, it clearly didn't take, you know? It had the, the reverse effect on me, you know? Um, recently, uh, she, you know, about a year back, actually, tried to convince me to um, drink this. She, she fermented this juice for like a month or two in this big jug, and she gave it to me, and she said, um, drink this a couple times a day, okay? And she said, in a few months, um, you're going to start to lose weight like you won't believe, you know? In fact, the weight loss is going to be so dramatic that you're probably going to want to stop taking it because you're losing too much weight. Now, I almost never take any of the stuff she gives me. Um, usually just sits in the fridge until finally, uh, out of guilt, I just throw it away. But I knew how to lose a few pounds, okay? I, I recognize that. And the thought of this magic elixir that could help me lose so much weight <laughs> with no change in activity or diet that I would have to stop taking it because I would start looking anorexic, you know? Um, it was too tempting. So I started drinking this stuff. It was nasty, but I drank it. For like nine months, I drank it, okay? Morning and night, faithfully. Until finally, not that long ago, I had to acknowledge, nothing's happening here, you know? <laughs> not working. And it was that sinking feeling, you know. Ugh, you fell for it, you know. It's like uh, you knew it had to be too good to be true. Uh, and I felt like such a, you know, I, last week I used the S word, and so I was told by some parents that that's not a good word, so I won't say it. <laughs> but uh, the, I said that's I said stupid, in case you wonder what I said, okay? So, but I, I felt so dumb inside, okay? Um, this is just a lighthearted story of being disappointed, but it's nothing compared to, I think, how crushed Jesus' disciples must have felt that first Easter. And the reason why they were so disappointed was because, I think, their view of salvation was so wrong. Of everyone who claimed to be the Messiah, because Jesus was not the first. There were others who came before him who claimed to be the Messiah. But of all of them, Jesus actually lived up to the hype. He did things that no one had ever done before. He taught with an authority that they never saw in any of their other leaders. And by all indications, he was the one that they were waiting for. But then the Romans killed him before his revolution could even take off. And they said to Jesus in verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You know, that's code for we thought he was going to beat up the Romans for us and restore Israel to its former days of glory like it used to be 
when we had King David and some of these other great kings who led us. You see, as far as the Jews were concerned, a savior who didn't solve the problem of Rome was a useless savior. After all, what good is a Messiah if he doesn't fix the biggest problem that you face in your life? And for the Jews, the biggest problem was the Romans. And the Romans killed Jesus. And so at least as far as they could understand, Jesus was a failure. He failed. You see, what the Jews couldn't understand that day, at least at that point in history, was that their biggest problem wasn't a political one. It was a spiritual one. The message of the cross was that our biggest problem is the sin that separates us from God. The problem is not with the circumstances out there, other people, other things that are happening to me. But the message of the cross is the biggest problem is what's happening inside my own heart. The sin that holds me in bondage and rages within me. That is what Jesus came to deliver me from. Jesus' disciples were also crushed for another reason. It's because at least at that point in time, they believed in a gospel without a resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection, at least at that point in time. As far as they knew, the leader of their movement was dead. And so they're wondering as they're walking back home, what was all of this for? What was the point of all of this? What hope was there in the aftermath of the death of their leader? Might as well just go home and resume life. Go back to our business. Because our leader is dead. And I want to say this. I think in our day, we suffer from the same two problems. First, I want to say this. Our view of salvation is too short-sighted. Maybe I could phrase it like this. What would God have to do for you to prove that he loves you and is there for you? How would you complete this sentence? What good is Jesus if he won't blank? What good is Jesus if he won't even blank? And I want to say this. God does care about the small details of your life. He does. Your marriage, your family, your career, your finances, your health, your hopes and dreams, it does all matter to God. But the greatest work that Jesus has done for us is to bring us peace with God by paying the penalty of our sin that we could not pay for ourselves on the cross. And because that peace that he offers us through that work on the cross, we have the hope of eternal life so that we no longer have to fear death. And what I want to say is this. If that hope is real in you, then whatever disappointments and setbacks that you're going to experience in this life, because you are going to experience them, can never crush your spirits, will pale in comparison to what you realize Christ has given you. I'm sure that you guys are all familiar with his name, Warren Buffett. He's the second richest man in the U.S. 
with a net worth of almost $80 billion. Okay? And he has this interesting exercise that he does sometimes when he talks with young people like high school students. And, you know, um, obviously he's got some credibility because he's made it in life and he's become so wealthy. And so he tells stu- these students this. He says, imagine someone offering to buy you any car that you want in the world. Whatever make, whatever model, it doesn't matter. If you want it, he's going to give it to you for free. And he asked these students, what car would you choose? What would you pick if you could have any car out there? You can see the, the wheels turning in the heads of these kids that they're trying to figure out what their dream car would be. But then he adds this really important caveat, and he says this. You can pick whatever car you want, but this is going to be the only car you'll ever own in your life. So you better pick a good one because it's got to last you your entire life. And so not only should you make a really careful decision about the car, but even once you get it, think about how carefully you have to take care of it so that it'll last you your entire lifetime. Then Buffett makes this point to the students. And he says, you know, you only get one life. You only get one body. And so how should you take care of your life, your body, if this is the only one you're going to get? There's no do-overs in life. You don't get to hit the reset button. This is one shot and one shot only that you get in this life. Shouldn't you exercise the same care and diligence over the choices you make for your life and your body as you would a car that you knew you would have to drive for the rest of your life? Now, listen, I get what Buffett is trying to teach these kids. That taken in the right way, it is a challenge that inspires us to live meaningful lives. <laughs> but as I was watching him and in interacting with these students, I also had this thought of what a crushing weight that is to put on these young souls that are just starting off in life, right? What a crushing weight of responsibility. You have one life. You better not screw it up, you know? And, and here's the interesting thing. I'm not even sure Warren Buffett listened to his own advice, (laughs) to be honest. He's like a one-trick pony. He knows how to make money. But do you know that Buffett eats regularly at McDonald's? (laughs) And the reason he does it is because it's cheap. (laughs) The guy's worth $80 billion, and he's trying to save money by eating at McDonald's. Through most of his marriage, he was so emotionally unavailable to his wife that when his kids finally grew up and graduated from college, she left him, relocated to the Bay Area in San Francisco to live her own life. Listen, all of us are going to experience setbacks in life. And, you know, I, I think I've shared this before behind this pulpit, but for like over a decade I did campus ministry with college students. And 
what's so fun about working with college students is that there is this, like, optimism and hope for life that you cannot extinguish, (laughs) no matter what happens to them. They're just so optimistic about their future, you know? No matter how bad life is in the moment, their attitude is tomorrow is going to be better. This is the start of my life. I've got decades to figure this out and do better for myself. But what do you do when that hope starts to dwindle in your life? When you start hitting your 30s, and your 40s, and your 50s? And as the years go by, life doesn't quite go as you planned it. And, and it's a scary moment, isn't it? When you kind of are reaching middle age and the optimism starts to fade. And you realize, you know what? More doors are closing in my life than opening. And you start thinking about some really dark thoughts. Is this as far as I'm going to get in my career? Is this the best that my marriage is ever going to be? Will marriage even ever happen for me? I thought I'd be married by now. Is this as good as life is going to get for me? I didn't think this is where I would be at this point in my life. And maybe it's because of poor choices that you've made. Maybe it's because of the poor choices of others that have been inflicted on you. Maybe it's because of circumstances that are so much larger than you that you really had no choice. Regardless of the cause or who's to blame, Listen, disappointments are unavoidable in life. And they don't just magically disappear because you're a Christian. But Jesus offers us an eternal hope that all the disappointments and setbacks in life can never touch. That's the message of Easter. That's the message of the cross. You have peace with God. And that is the most important thing of anything that you can gain in this life. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 to 19. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he, was ra- he, he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. We are of all people most to be pitied. I think that's a very real and honest question that we have to ask ourselves. In the hope that you have in Christ, does the resurrection factor in there? Because I counsel Christians who have grown up in the church all their life with experiencing such profound disappointment toward God of all the ways that God has failed you because of the things that he didn't do for your life, for your marriage, for your career, and on and on. And it seems to miss the whole big point that Christ went on a cross to die for your sins and mine, that we can have peace with God. 
so that you do not have to fear death, that there is nothing in this life that can touch that hope because of what Christ has done. Does the resurrection factor in the joy that you have because of Jesus? Or do you sit like these Emmaus Road disciples, disappointed with God, feeling that he has somehow let you down, that he has failed you? It's been a tradition during spring break for our family, my family and my brother's family, to do an outing in the city, downtown Chicago. And uh, after doing this for like the better part of a decade, I, I think we've done everything. We did Millennial Park and Buckingham Fountain and you know, Navy Pier and like Sears Tower. Like we've done it all. So we always have to think, what do you guys want to do this year? And they go, eh, you know. It's just they're kind of tired of trying out the latest trendy restaurants. So this spring break of this year, we, we actually took them to an escape room, you know. And... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm guessing, I look on Facebook and see some of you guys done this escape room too. If you don't know what the concept of an escape room is, uh, basically they lock you in a room and you have to find clues in this room that will ultimately allow you to escape. And they give you a certain time, usually I think like an hour to get out of there once you get all the clues. And so, you know, we're in this really dark room and you know, you, you start finding these clues. You, you find a Bible in the desk drawer, and there's these names and dates written on it. And uh, you see some photographs on a bookshelf. You're trying to figure out who these people are. And you find a, a playing card somewhere. And so you're trying to figure out, you know, what's the significance of the, you know, ace of, you know, whatever, uh, spades or something. And, and then you find this board game with all these numbers and these colors on it. And if you've ever done one of these escape rooms, uh, it's frustrating, you know, because you've got all of these random clues that you found, and you don't know how it comes together to solve the mystery, you know? You, you feel like you've yet to discover some vital clue that's going to unlock everything, you know? And I think that was the situation with Jesus' disciples. They knew so much about the Bible they knew about the law, the prophets, the historical narratives, but it was like they were missing the one key that would unlock everything so that they could actually understand what the whole point of all of these thousands of pages of writing were about. In Luke chapter 24, verse 25 to 27, it says, And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus gives them what has to be the mother of all Bible studies, you know? And I don't know why Cleopas didn't write it down, you know? I was like dying to know what Jesus said here. That's why we don't name our kids Cleopas, because he... he he, he failed, you know? Should have written this down. Um, I, that was unfair. I, whenever I go off notes, I say dumb things like that, so let me get back here. You know? So Jesus basically walks through the entire Old Testament with them in this, like, four-hour-long Bible study. And he basically shows them, do you see? 
everything points to me. Everything. Um, Throughout our study of Luke, I've been pointing that out. Whenever Jesus fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy, and that's one of the things Jesus says, all the prophets, everything that the prophets wrote about was about me. It all points back to me. Uh, When it came to the law, Jesus says, all of that was about me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. See, your, your religious leaders tell you, obey the law so that you can be saved. And Paul says that's not the reason why the law was given to us. It was given to show us that we cannot obey the law. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, though, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares something really bold. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, I'm the only one that can fulfill this law. And so I'm going to do it on your behalf. Even the Old Testament sacrificial system, Jesus must have pointed out to these guys that it was pointing to him. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 to 7 says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you are not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. See that? Jesus is saying, you prepared a body for me that I could be the ultimate sacrifice and deal once and forever the sins of this world on my own body. I have come to fulfill this law. We already talked about the scapegoat and the Passover lamb. And when you finally understand that Jesus is the key that unlocks everything, it all begins to make sense. You know, it's interesting. The fact that Jesus died on a Friday and was resurrected on a Sunday, that's not random timing. You know, last week I talked about why this Saturday gap day, this meaningless filler day, if Jesus was going to be resurrected, why didn't the Father just do it on Saturday? Well, when you study the Old Testament and read it through that lens of seeing everything pointing to Jesus, what you discover is this repeated pattern of salvation coming on the third day. When Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac, God provides the lamb on the third day. In the days of Joshua, when Rahab, the prostitute, hides the Israelite spies, they are saved on the third day. Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days, when on the third day, he is rescued. And when Queen Esther fasts on behalf of her people, who are about to be exterminated and killed, It is the third day 
that she stands before King Xerxes and secures the salvation of her people. And so this theme arises of a third day in the Old Testament. The third day, the third day. Salvation is coming the third day, and then Jesus rises from the dead on the third day. And you can imagine as Jesus is unpacking all of this to these two clueless disciples, it's like light bulbs are going off. And they actually describe it as, when he was sharing this stuff with us, it was like a fire burning in my heart. It was like for the first time it made sense. The law isn't as our other leaders tell us about trying to live a righteous life. Because the truth is we all know we can't do it. It is the reality that all of this, all of it, was pointing to Jesus. And he is the fulfillment of it all. Without understanding this, the Bible becomes a crushing weight that destroys us in guilt and shame. Or at best, it's a silly little book of inspirational quotes that you can put on calendars, like chicken soup for the soul, right? Let me give a, find a little picker-upper verse in there that makes me feel better about my life. But Jesus says it's not that. This whole book points to Jesus. It pointed to me and showed how I am the answer to every human problem. It's interesting. I shared this with you before, uh, this uh, French mathematician of a previous century, Blaise Pascal. Although he had grown up in church, it wasn't until 1654 that he finally saw Jesus and understood the gospel. And so powerful was that experience that he wrote out his testimony on a piece of paper and rolled it up and sewed it into the lining of his favorite coat. And this is some excerpts of what he wrote about that day in 1654 when he met Jesus. He starts in all caps with this word, fire. (laughs) Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, let me never be separated from him. May I not forget your words. Amen. That's what I want to ask you this morning is, do you know this fellowship of the burning heart? What it's like when you, for the first time, the light goes on. And in the midst of all of these trappings of religion, growing up in the church, or whatever your story is, trying to live the good life, hoping that this life will amount to something worthwhile, you realize for the first time what Christ has done for you when he gave his life on the cross. Let's pray. <laughs>